0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 48 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today we're asking the question, how can we best comfort the suffering and brokenhearted? And this is part one of a multi-part series. Happy Monday to you, friends. I want to open with a shout-out to Willem Dykstra of Minnesota, who left, left a very encouraging iTunes review. He said, Excellent podcast and edifying for anyone that seeks to be in God's Word daily. Also entertaining. Chase could be an actor in movie or stage or at least a voice actor. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Dykstra. Uh, I appreciate your kind words and your encouragement. I sometimes wonder if the voices are just merely annoying, but I do try my best and I appreciate your kindness. Today's Bible readings include Genesis chapter 50, a chapter that spans a long chronological period and sees the burial of Jacob, Joseph forgiving his brothers who sold him into slavery, and the death of Joseph himself. And by the way, that's a pretty big ask, to forgive a group of people that are your family brothers, as in your real brothers, who literally sold you into slavery and told your parents you were dead. Praise God that Joseph was able to forgive them. Luke chapter 3 is all about John the Baptist's ministry, his baptism of Jesus, and his ultimate arrest for daring to call out a political leader for sinful behavior. In 1 Corinthians 4, the apostle Paul discusses humility and delivers this powerful line, The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. Our focus passage today is in Job chapter 16 and is based on Job's deeply painful lamentation that his friends are, quote, miserable comforters rather than encouragers. As he says here in Job chapter 16, verse 2, you all are miserable comforters, Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? If you were in my place, I could also talk like you. I could string words together against you and shake my head at you. Instead, I would encourage you with my mouth, and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. Nancy Guthrie wrote a fantastic article on our subject today uh, over at DesiringGod.org, and you can find the article uh, by just simply going to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, for this episode, episode number 48, and you can click the link there, or you can just go to DesiringGod.org and search for What Do We Say to Grieving People, but here's an excerpt and it's really good. She says, grief is a very lonely experience. You know, even if all your friends are there for you in the best way possible, your spouse is there for you, all of those things, the essence of grief is a deep pervasive loneliness. And it means so much for people around us to overcome the awkwardness and maybe even the desire and fears that I'll say the wrong thing to say something. Honestly, the most painful thing is when you've had a loss and loss someone around you, because of the awkwardness, never acknowledges it. That's what hurts the most because what it says to you is that person you love who died doesn't even really merit a mention. And that's devastating. But for many of us, when you're carrying this huge load of sorrow and you look up and you see someone who is shedding tears, that they are so identifying with your loss that they are in a sense carrying some of the load of sorrow for you. That is an incredible gift to give someone who's grieving. And our question of the day is all about, practically, how we can help encourage and comfort those we know that are going through difficult times. Part of what I'm going to be sharing is from my very first book, which is called Unshackled, Facing Suffering with the Real Jesus and Not the Jesus of the Shack or Pop Culture Christianity. And yeah, that's the real title of the book. And Yeah, it's a bit too long of a title, maybe by about 50 words or so. Like I said, it was my first book, but I will say, William Shakespeare said it was the best book ever written in the entire English language. Or maybe he didn't. I've heard it both ways. Suffering is difficult to go through. I imagine I've just blown your mind with that incredibly profound statement, but it might be good for us to acknowledge how hard suffering really is, especially the Times when suffering stretches out for days and weeks and months. When we suffer, we want to feel better. We long for it. When our friends suffer, we want to help them. That's a good thing, obviously, if that desire to help our friends comes from a loving concern for their well-being. Far too often, though, I've sort of seen Christians make a bad situation worse by Poorly chosen words or empty, you know, greeting card style sentiments. The fact is, when our friends and family suffers, we suffer and we don't want to suffer. We avoid it. So sometimes, selfishly, we want our friends and family to stop suffering or at least stop suffering around us so that we will feel better. You know, we're looking out for number one. And that leads us to say dumb things like, hey, cheer up or wipe that frown off your face or Something horrible like, God needed a new angel in heaven, or some just dreck like that. Sometimes we fail to be good comforters because we simply want those suffering around us to stop suffering because they're harshing our mellow. Other times... We are like Job's friends and we fail to properly comfort people because we make false assumptions or we make arrogant statements or just say plain old dumb and inaccurate things. Let's read Job 16 now and see how our friends can be impacted when we are miserable comforters instead of healing helpers. Job chapter 16 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then Job answered, I have heard many things like this. These, you are all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? If you were in my place, I could also talk like you. I could string words together against you and shake my head at you. Instead, I would encourage you with my mouth, and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. If I speak, my suffering is not relieved, and if I hold back, does any of it leave me? Me? surely he has now exhausted me you've devastated my entire family you have shriveled me up it has become a witness my frailty rises up against me and testifies to my face his anger tears at me and he harasses me he gnashes his teeth at me my enemy pierces me with his eyes they open their mouths against me and strike my cheeks with contempt they join themselves together against me "'God hands me over to the unjust. "'He throws me to the wicked. "'I was at ease, but he shattered me. "'He seized me by the scruff of the neck "'and smashed me to pieces. "'He set me up at his target. "'His archers surround me. "'He pierced my kidneys without mercy "'and pours my bile on the ground.' He breaks through my defenses again and again. He charges at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin. I've buried my strength in the dust. My face has grown red with weeping and darkness covers my eyes. Although my hands are free from violence and my prayer is pure, earth do not cover my blood. May my cry for help find no resting place. Even now my witness is in heaven and my advocate is in the heights. My friends scoff at me as I weep before God. I wish that someone might argue for a man with God, just as anyone would for a friend. For only a few years will pass before I go the way of no return. What a piercing! lamentation and cry from Job who is going through some of the worst suffering recorded in the Bible and his friends aren't helping him. They are making it worse because they're being boobs. I would that we not make the same mistake mistake, that we, when our friends are going through suffering, we would be better For them than Job's friends were. Romans 12, 15 is one of the most powerful, profound, and short verses in the Bible on real friendship and ministry to people in general. And it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I was recently in a position of suffering. I've mentioned it a couple of times, and I was profoundly helped by friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, As I said a few days ago, I spent a night in the hospital last week. I thought it was a big deal, but it ended up just being tachycardia brought on by some medicine I take to treat uh, my relatively mild asthma. At one point, however, I thought I was having a heart attack. I wasn't, but I thought I was. And my wife was visiting friends and family back in our home state of Alabama, 2,200 miles away. I was in a pretty anxious state and... My wife, you know, being so far away, she didn't really know how to help, of course. So she made what ended up being a very wise and helpful decision. She called our friend and church member Kevin Lowe and told him what was going on. A short while later, very short actually, Kevin was at the hospital and he stayed with me for hours, literally. I encouraged him to go home several times, like eight or ten times but he stayed with me until well after 1 a.m. when I was good and settled in a room. I'll never forget that act of kindness. It's not so much that Kevin knew exactly the right things to say, although he you know, did a very good job of that, but it was his presence that made the difference. Other friends came too, and I am grateful for their ministry. None of those friends nor Kevin were pastors, and none of them were professional hospital visitors. But they all did a wonderful job of communicating God's love and grace to me just by their mere presence. We sometimes don't help people who are suffering because we don't know the precise words to say to make it better. But, you know, generally speaking, it's not about that at all. When somebody's going through a crisis, it is not your words of wisdom that they need, but your presence and your love expressed in obvious action. The book of Job is very, very clear that we aren't always going to understand our suffering and the reasons behind it. It's also very, very clear that trying to explain the reasons for something that only God understands is folly and likely to earn the wrath of God and increase the misery of your friends. If you don't know the right things to say, just stand in the right place, and the right place is nearby. A couple of years ago, my wife and I went to the funeral of one of our dear friend's sisters. She died suddenly, and her mother, uh, Mrs. Martin, was left to bury her daughter, something that often happens in this cruel world but should never, ever happen. Mrs. Martin is a godly, vibrant, and joyful woman who has hundreds of friends through the church that she has been a member of for like 30 years plus. The visitation for the funeral was quite Crowded because of that, and Mrs. Martin, though herself soft, suffering the loss of her youngest daughter, was kindly ministering to everybody that had come to see her. She was hugging them all and smiling at them, deeply grieving on the inside, but not so much on the surface. I watched as one of her friends walked up to her, one more mourner in an extremely long line of friends. This friend was a tall woman that maybe seemed a bit awkward on the surface. She said nothing, but simply leaned over and hugged Mrs. Martin and cried. Not gentle and appropriate tears, and not loud and attention-grabbing tears, but deep, heartfelt tears that came from what was obvious a genuine place of mourning. The two ladies just hugged and cried for quite some time. No words were said. As the taller lady walked away, she noticed one of her friends in the line and looked at her friend and simply said, I didn't know what to say, so I just cried. Though there's no way... For me to be sure, I believe that this lady, out of hundreds of people that came to the funeral that day to comfort Mrs. Martin, was probably one of the most comforting by far. No words were exchanged, but it was obvious to an outside observer how much it meant to Miss Martin to have somebody actually weep with her. Now, this will be a topic that we will explore a little bit more tomorrow, and maybe even the day after that, since it's a pretty important one. The call to comfort the suffering is really, really, really important important enough to warrant uh, maybe a few days of focus on this podcast, especially as we behold the day-by-day botched job of Job's friends in that department. I do want to close with an encouragement to you, and this is from one of my heroes of the faith, George Mueller, the man who founded uh, multiple orphanages in England, took care of thousands of children and never asked humans for donations, only prayed. He says this, when sometimes all has been dark, exceedingly dark, with reference to my service among the saints, judging from natural experiences, yes, when I should have been overwhelmed indeed in grief and despair had I looked at things after their outward appearance, at such times I have sought to encourage myself in God by laying hold in faith on His mighty power, His unchangeable love, and His infinite wisdom. And I have said to myself, God is able and willing to deliver me if it's good for me, for it is written in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Amen. What a powerful encouragement Romans 8.32 is. Now let's move on to Genesis chapter 50. Verse 1. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants, who were physicians, to embalm his father, so they embalmed Israel. They took forty days to complete this, for embalming takes that long, and the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. When the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, If I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me take an oath saying, I am about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father, then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Then Joseph went to bury his father, and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, along with all of Joseph's family, his brothers, and his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with him. It was a very impressive procession. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, They lamented and wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel-Mitsurim. Mitzrim. is a cross the Jordan. So Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as burial property from Ephron the Hethite. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Uh, Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers' transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph and his father of his family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, Machir were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath. When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough way smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance, and don't start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? the crowds were asking him. He replied to them, The one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, "'Teacher, what should we do?' He told them, "'Don't collect any more money than what you've been authorized.' Some soldiers also questioned him, "'What should we do?' He said to them, "'Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages.' Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Mattathias, son of Simeon, son of Josech, son of Jodah, son of Johanan, son of Resa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Nehri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Cosim, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, son of Joram, son of Metat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malia, son of Minna, son of Matartha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Neshon, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah. Son of Nahor, son of Sarag, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shela, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. A person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not conscious of anything against myself, but I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the heart. And then praise will come to each one from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? You're already full. You're already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us, and I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to people. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are Dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we respond graciously. Even now, we are like the scum of the earth, like everyone's garbage. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, for you may have countless instructors in Christ— But you don't have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod, or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Me, I think I vote for the love and spirit of gentleness. How about you? Good day to you, friends. We'll be back tomorrow with more discussion of comforting the sufferings. Godspeed to you.